You are listening to the Engineering Ignition podcast, your weekly insights into the engineering sector. Sponsored by Bonfire Recruitment, helping engineering leaders across the UK to attract the best talent for their engineering company. Ignite your business or career today by visiting www.bonfireengineering.com. Here's your host, Scott Buchanan. Welcome to this week's Engineering Ignition podcast with myself, Scott Buchanan. Thanks for tuning in and I do hope you get to enjoy the show. And my goodness, what a podcast we have in store today. As this week, I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Jones, MBE, who is presently the President and Chair of the International Energy Advisory Council. Now, for those who are not aware, the IEAC is a not-for-profit company that provides independent advice to governments and other organisations who want to implement decisive steps towards 100% renewable energy future and thereby contribute to sustainable development and to climate change mitigation and adaption. The IEAC's energy experts, analysts and consultants have collectively advised more than 200 governments and organisations in 28 countries, as well as more than 50 international organisations. Effectively, Alan works with governments and public bodies across the world to challenge traditional energy strategies and create and establish modern private commercial partnerships to achieve an environmentally friendly energy solution to all concerned. Now, Alan has an incredible background. In recent years, he has been the significant focal point across many countries in driving energy efficiency, renewable energy and climate change projects throughout the world from a senior and strategic standpoint. I want to give you a flavour of what projects his senior leadership career has exposed him to, give you a little bit of the de- detail. Initially, Alan was director of Thameswee Limited for Woking Borough Council's Energy Environmental Services Company, where during his time at Woking, the council reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 77.5% below the 1990 levels by 2004. This naturally put him in a good position to becoming the CEO of the London Climate Change Agency from 2004 to 2008, contributing to the development of the Mayor's Climate Change Action Plan of Energy and Climate Change Components of the revised London Plan, Renewable Energy and Fuel Cell Tri-Generation Projects, and the Energy and Climate Change Components of the London 2012 Olympic Bids. Now, Alan was then appointed the Chief Development Officer, Energy and Climate Change of the City of Sydney from 2009 and 2014, where during his time at Sydney, the city reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 25% in the city's own property portfolio. He established the Better Buildings Partnership with major property landlords, which reduced greenhouse gas emissions by 52% in their property portfolio and developed and adopted the Green Infrastructure Master Plans to deliver a 100% renewable energy city and reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 70% below 2006 levels by 2030. It's incredible. Now, Alan was also appointed an independent advisory board member of the National Climate Change Adaption Research Facility, the NCCARF, easier for me to say, from 2011 to 2013. Now, the NCCARF was established with funding of $56.2 million from the federal Australian government, 
Queensland government and nine universities. It was hosted by the Griffith University. The research facility delivered 150 grant-aided research projects on how Australia can adapt to the impacts of climate change with a total expenditure of just over um, 63 million Australian dollars. And to top it off, in 2013, Alan was appointed as a member of the Seoul International Energy Advisory Council to provide expert advice to the Seoul Metropolitan Government on its One Less Nuclear Power Plant Programme, Phase 1, and Sustainable Energy Action Plan, Phase 2. Now, 18 months to 2014, Seoul had reduced its centralised energy demand by 23,260 gigawatts and greenhouse gas emissions by 6 million tonnes. The phase two programme is presently underway, which will reduce centralised energy demand by 46,250 gigawatts and greenhouse gas emissions by 10 million tonnes by 2020. The Seoul Energy Corporation was established in 2017 to take forward the programme of works. And in recognition of Alan's incredible work, Alan was appointed a member of the British Empire in 1999 for services to energy and water efficiency and was instrumental in Wokingborough Council being awarded the Queen's Award for Enterprise, Sustainable Development and released in respect rather of his energy services department activities in the development of the local sustainability community energy systems, the only local authority ever to receive a Queen's Award for Enterprise. Now, I think it's fair to say that Alan has a significant insight into what can be achieved within energy and climate change from a number of perspectives, and I'm really looking forward to discussing a hot topic today. Welcome to the show, Alan. I hope I did you justice in my introduction. I think so. You always have to sort of reduce it. When, you, when you've got a long CV, you have to chop stuff out of it, but we'll maybe pick up on some of that when we, when we have a discussion. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, one of the, the reasons I was keen to have this discussion with you is that there's not many individuals in the world that actually have the exposure and the angles that you've been looking at over, you know, from a, a strategic standpoint, as well as a hands-on perspective as well. So, um, so let, let's see. So um, a hot topic today, which is the energy of everything and climate change. Is, is, is the world now sorted out? Is, is, are we 100% efficient energy and, you know, there's no room for improvement? Where do you think is a good place to start a discussion? Well, I mean, clearly there is action going on at the moment um, uh, and certainly a lot more than there was, um, you know, when I first started this at Woking, which was 1990. That's two years before the Rio Earth Summit. And, um, and really in recent years, we have seen certain parts of the world uh, UK amongst those, but also we've seen California and we've seen some of the other US states as well. Um, parts of Australia, maybe not the federal government, but certainly state governments are pushing their agenda there. Um, so we are beginning to see um, big moves forward. Um, some countries approaching 100% renewable energy, big programs on energy efficiency and so on. Um, but in terms of where we need to be, it's not enough. Um, we've got a long way to go. Uh, the 2050 time frame, um, for those that know anything about climate change, is too far away. We need to, it needs to be much shorter than that. And as hopefully we'll find out during this conversation, 
um, you know, you can achieve those 2050 targets a lot earlier than 2050. Um, and that's why a lot of countries are, are adopting 2030 and at the latest 2040. And that's driven by the science. We actually um, need to reduce the emissions, um, not only by those huge amounts, but within a short time frame. Otherwise, the, the emissions that are in the atmosphere already, and don't forget they accumulate, so we've still got emissions there from the Industrial Revolution. Um, that's still going to carry on climbing. And so we're already being confronted by uh, the actions of climate change. Um, and we can't do much to reverse those at the moment, certainly not within the next 100 years. So it is important to, um, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions at a far greater rate than, the, than most governments are adopting. Okay. So, so yes, the, the target of the, the carbon mandate of 2050, um, and, and I guess this is what you've been involved in and in actually proving that, that, that things can speed up just because the way renewable energy and um, policies as well um, have always been, whatever way they've always been, um, there is always still room for improvement. I mean, do we have any key examples that you would suggest tie in to, to, to back that up? Um, well, as I said before, the UK is doing quite well with renewable energy, particularly offshore wind. Um, and they're also trying to tackle the issue of how we decarbonise natural gas and what will take its place. Uh, some of the states in, in Australia um, have got, um, will get to 100% renewable energy within the next few years, certainly South Australia and the Australian Capital Territory, which is Canberra. It's quite perverse that the federal government seems to want to, to uh, slow everything down and, and stick with uh, coal and gas, whereas the actual local authority that runs Canberra will actually something like 75% renewables already, and they'll achieve their 100% renewables within the next five years. Um, similarly, we've seen some big moves in California. They keep bringing their um, renewable energy targets forward. Uh, countries like Costa Rica are already at virtually 100% renewable energy. It isn't just renewable energy. We have to um, understand that um, it's a combination of energy efficiency and renewable energy because your renewable energy component can achieve far more if you don't have to supply uh, energy for that, that is being wasted, what we call megawatts. And so if you can reduce energy consumption by 30, 40, 50 percent, then your renewable energy don't have uh, to uh, implement as much renewable energy over a longer time frame. It's really about taking a, a holistic approach. And not many governments have that. They tend to have these things in different departments. Energy efficiency tends to be in a different department to energy, for example. And it's important that we take a holistic approach to actually bring these targets forward rather much earlier than 2050. Okay. And, and how easy is that to do? I mean, is, is that a challenge to me, trying to get, you know, certainly in this country, things to move quicker can be challenging. So, I mean, is, is that fair across the world as well? It's not an engineering issue. I, I am an engineer myself. Um, it's, actually, it's actually a mindset and political uh, issue. Okay. And, um, uh, and of course, you've got, um, you've got a, opposing things going on. Governments make money out of the fossil fuel extraction licenses the taxes that they get on it and corporations that. So it's quite difficult to actually wean governments off of fossil fuel. <laughs> yeah. The economics around it. And it's about taking that leap from you can actually also get income from renewable energy and energy efficiency um, that could displace or replace the income that governments get from fossil fuels. Um, it's just that you need to do it in a different way. 
uh, fossil fuels charged by consumption. But over the years, of course, we've been used to paying by, for services. A you know, classic example is the IT industry, mobile telephones, that sort of thing. You mm -hmm. don't pay by consumption, you pay by service. You'd like to pay up front, you know, fixed charges and so on. Yes, you might have a, a data allowance or something. And that's actually where we need to go with re renewable energy because um, uh, issues about um, uh, sort of efficiency and, and how much uh, energy you can extract from the sun or the wind or flowing water and so on um, become almost irrelevant because what you actually want is, is to have all your energy um, supplied by renewable energy and there's many ways of doing that. And I guess the ideal utopia for a, um, a household consumer like you and I or, or a business would actually to, to uh, generate all of your own energy, consume it yourself, and any service you can sell onto a, onto a neighbour or so on. That's the principle of decentralised energy. And you're turning consumers into prosumers. And um, uh, and we're even beginning to see this in some of the really big industries, like you know cement and so on. There's some, uh, some uh, really interesting work going on in Australia that's supplying huge energy loads solely from renewable energy. Incredible. And that, that's happening there at the moment. Now, um, and, and we'll delve into the, the detail a little bit shortly, but in, in terms of the perception, living in the United Kingdom and, you know, the, the year we're in versus listening to, you know, what's happening in Costa Rica or Australia, um, where I guess it's maybe a hotter climate, is it maybe easier to get the renewable energy source, therefore, you know, easier to implement these policies? I mean, is, is there hope for the United Kingdom? What, what stage? How, would, how, how are we going to do it? Or what's the challenges we face? Yes, when you look at countries like Australia, I mean, they, 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 the, the amount of solar energy that falls on Australia, they could supply more than half the world, if only it could yeah. and export it to those places. And I'll come back to that in a moment. So okay. Um, and, and obviously countries like, you know, uh, you know, states like California have similar things. Uh, Tasmania is virtually 100% renewable, principally based on, on hydro because they've got mountains, got lots of rivers, and, and they're able to generate hydro from that. Um, and so when you look at countries, you have to look what is their resource. And the biggest resource that the UK has is wind. We've got pretty much 50% of Europe's wind. Our coastal waters in the North Sea and, and elsewhere and that's why we're seeing a booming offshore wind industry. And, uh, and the wind turbines are just getting bigger and bigger. I can remember seeing the first uh, wind turbines down at Delabold in Cornwall, 250 kilowatts. Now you can get them at 14 and a half megawatts. You know? And there's every, it doesn't seem, every couple of months, somebody else seems to come out with a bigger one. <laughs> um, and when you consider how much you can actually put in, in, the, in the North Sea and, and elsewhere, um, then, uh, the UK could probably be in a position that Australia could be with their solar in terms of not only supplying huge amounts of renewable energy to itself, but also to be able to export it. Wow. And there are technologies, and we perhaps come on to that later, where we can convert uh, electricity into renewable hydrogen, into renewable gases. You can inject these uh, renewable methane into the gas grid. These are, these are uh, we can talk about projects that are going on elsewhere in the world at the moment, where, where we can take advantage of this. The interesting fact about Australia, when I, when I did the Renewable Energy Master Plan, is that Australia is the world's second largest offshore wind resource, second only to Russia. And neither countries have offshore wind, because they're driven by coal and gas. And uh -huh. 
And that's what we need to change. Actually, governments can make just as much, if not more, money out of renewables. Yeah. It's beating results. It's always there. You haven't got to forward predict to how many years will you know have you got before coal, oil, or gas runs out. Because these are issues that governments are going to have to face in the future in any event. And it's much better to have a transition. And and by that I mean um, rather than end up on on two sides of an argument, actually help to transition the fossil fuel companies into renewable energy companies. They own lots of land by and large. You see some of these big mines, you know, mm-hmm. and, and in places they could actually generate renewable energy. Technologies that they develop, like liquefaction of gas and so on, can also be used for uh, renewable gases and hydrogen. So, and they are essentially engineering companies, engineering business. But how do you change the mindset of people that are used to digging holes in the ground to actually something which is a lot more safer, erecting stuff above ground to capture the renewable energy from you know, wind and solar, for example? Yeah, no, and, and, and that's that that's a, a valid point. That I guess the, the, the tax or the income to any government is clearly very, very important. And energy is uh, uh, is something that everybody uses and they can probably predict that energy equals you know X amount of money coming into the government's um, bank account. So the very fact that you're suggesting or the, the, the facts are if you've got one of the you know, the UK has significant wind resource, um, and assuming we can capture that and store it and send it on, then there is actually scope for us selling, rather than buying our electricity from, I believe France is quite a major supplier at the moment, we can actually sell it on. Is that is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. And the kind of mindset uh, we're beginning to see that people are beginning to try and get their head rails, particularly governments, what happens when you move from a fossil fuel transport fleet to an electric fleet? There's no fuel duty taxes, for example. Yeah. <laughs> so these are these are sort of economic issues and political issues. Um, and unfortunately, politicians just so used, they've been brought up on this since day one. They just can't think outside the box. And actually, you think, well, actually, what you need to do is to change the tax structure. Instead of having a tax on consumption, you have a tax on use. So, for example, road charging. It doesn't matter whether that's a, a, a car driven by petrol, diesel, or an electric vehicle. There is a mechanism to actually uh, uh, replace the fossil fuel duties with some kind of uh, usage system as opposed to a consumption system. That's the kind of thing that we're, we're talking about is actually using a bit of uh, sort of smart economics around uh, how the energy thing is changing from something like fossil fuels, which is a consumption commodity, to something that is a usage commodity. And um, and that, you know, to me, that doesn't seem to be too difficult. Yeah. You know? you know, I think most people other than politicians... <laughs> <and> proper... <laughs> but I think... Um, That's the kind of thing that we're talking about. And they're the kind of discussions we should be having now because this is moving forward. The trouble with that is you can end up with some unintended consequences. You can end up with stranded assets, even even stranded renewable assets. Because one of the reasons why we did the Renewable Energy Master Plan in, in, in Sydney is that actually, if you look at anywhere around the country, even those countries and states that are doing well with renewable energy, they don't actually have a plan as to how much renewable energy they actually need wind, solar, hydro, storage, don't have a plan, not a big master plan. 
Whereas the fossil fuel, you know, if, you, if, you, if you're in the electricity industry, they always have a plan. They have had right from day one. They have to know I mean, coal-fired power stations, gas, oil, uh, storage, uh, you know, pump storage, all that sort of thing. They, they, they have to have that as part of the plan in order to provide a 100% fossil fuel system. Well, you need to start thinking about how you do the same thing, but for renewable energy. Otherwise, you could be investing money in a particular technology or resource that you'll find in the future you've got too much of. Or you should have built it for an export market rather than for use in, in that country. So things like that that um, politicians and even economists are not really thinking about because it's, it's just like get as much renewable energy in as you can, but we still need gas-fired backup you know, generators for when the, you get the peaks and troughs when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. All those arguments, which we're beginning to see uh, out-engineered by storage technologies and so on. So I think that's the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about. And it, when you think about that, if you, if you join all those dots up together, because the, the resources there, we've got far more renewable resources in the world than we could ever consume. It's really about joining up these dots. And then you see, well, if we get, if we get the economics right, if we get the taxation right, and, and that the governments can be comfortable that they can get the same income from taxation from renewables and electric cars mm -hmm. or whatever, they have from fossil fuels it just makes it a whole lot easier and then you'll see it accelerate because who wants to actually see people going underground digging coal and, and the health and safety issues that go, goes with that you know it'd be far better if these people were working above ground and, and as i said before you know mining companies they are really engineering companies it wouldn't much retraining to move from mining to building wind solar farms uh, you know electrolyzers, or whatever technologies you need. And then your export markets where you're used to exporting fossil fuel, natural gas, you could be exporting renewable gas or renewable hydrogen. So it's really about changing the mindset of businesses as well. And transition, I think you need something where governments need to help those companies transition. Whereas what we've got at the moment is a bit laissez-faire. There is some health renewable companies, they had these uh, bidding rounds for the you know for the North Sea offshore wind farms and there's some other stuff going on in the background that you don't hear about. They're still they're still providing fossil fuels, you know, support for fuels and so on. And none of it's joined up. There are different departments in, in governments and, and that's the that's what's got to change because we are we are moving into a whole new world and it's gonna happen in any event. It, it's just it, it could happen a lot easier and a lot more economical with much less pain if this was managed properly a proper transition by government working with uh, business to actually move from a to b at a lot faster rate than we are currently doing at the moment yeah no you, you, absolutely and one of the one of the when you work with sizable and scalable organizations what what you tend to find is that each department within the organization tends to focus internally on their own area rather than working together as a, as a bigger company in some cases. And I guess it's the same with the government as well, isn't it? Whereby they each will have their own remit and they're not interested in, you know, whatever else it is. So actually getting these departments to talk to each other for the greater good of, you know, the environment, if nothing else. Um, and for future generations is, is really important. 
Um, Alan, just, just before, before we, we, we delve in, I mean, I gave an initial profile at the start. I mean, is there anything, I mean, clearly look, you, you, you have some significant background and is there anything specific within what you've learned in recent times that we really should be focusing in on now? What, 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 what's the, is there any lessons that you've maybe learned that you think, do you know what, if, if we did this, it will work? I think we come to people um, and how do you convince people to do something? And I guess, um, uh, I mean, you'll find loads of articles uh, of what I've done in, in all of these places, but most of them really miss the point. It isn't necessarily the technology that um, uh, that is uh, the exciting bit about all this. It's the fact that I've actually got local authorities and business to actually do something that they weren't previously doing. Uh -huh. That thing. Now, how do you do that? And that's the bit that that um, that sort of intellectual property, if you like, that has never really been tapped into. Uh, I'll give you an example. In Sydney, when I first arrived in Sydney, all these things we were talking about, and what, uh, we implemented a major program because they wanted to reduce energy consumption in a very short period of time. And so I had energy efficiency, I had LED street lighting, had tri generation, had renewable energy. But when I looked in and, and this was no surprise to me because it was the same in the UK, they're all in different departments. So how do you manage that? Because then you've got different directors with their own budgets and also a little bit concerned about somebody outside taking control. So I agreed with the CEO that I would actually work for the CEO of the City of Sydney. I would be in her department and that I would actually not have much staff under me. I would actually use the staff that already existed in these departments. I would work with the directors. So for the property department, etc., I wanted to implement building energy retrofits. And we did that on, a, on, a, on an output performance specification. I said, well, put all your properties in there. I want the last five years of energy consumption, electricity, gas, so to give as much information as possible to the tenderers in order to work out how they could reduce energy. And the interesting thing here wasn't necessarily the cheapest tender that we were looking for. It was the tender that produced the greatest amount of uh, reduction in energy consumption. Hmm. And we took the same approach with LED lighting and solar energy. Um, and if you put it as an output performance, you then find that people can actually give you more than you've asked for for an input specification, which usually consultants typically say, we want so many megawatts of solar, or we want so many LED lights. We changed all that and we reversed it around. And it also made the uh, directors and the departments and the staff within those departments more comfortable because I hadn't changed their working arrangements at all. We hadn't created a new department. We hadn't done anything like that. Just made use of the people that were already there to deliver a, a program driven from the top. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't, you know, if you wanted to argue with me, then you'd also be arguing with the CEO of the City of Sydney. So, <laughs> so that was always in the background. But... Um, you, you don't you don't deal with these situations through fear. You you want to bring people along with you, particularly uh, in the case of Sydney. They hadn't done anything. You know, Australia hadn't done anything. You know, you're suddenly moving from running a, a city like you've always done. All of a sudden, you've got to change it all, and we've got to start doing all these weird and wonderful technologies. But it happened, and we did that in a short period of time. And um, and, and to a certain extent, we did the same thing in Seoul as well, making making that that mm -hmm. use. And of course. Each time I move on from somewhere, I work in London, Sydney, you learn from what you've done before. Yeah. I won't 
early mistakes, but better ways of doing things. Also, you've got to appreciate that you go to different countries, different cities. They're, they're not necessarily the same as the UK. They might speak English, but the, the, the local government setup in Australia is completely different to what it is in, in, the, in the UK. So you have to be mindful of that. Um, so I think um, I could talk for a long time about that sort of human side of things, but actually that's the thing that's most often missed in articles about this because everyone wants to focus on solar, trigen, energy efficiency, because that's the bit that they think their readers want to see. But it's capturing this bit of how do you change the hearts and minds of people to get them to do things that they've never done before. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's that's incredible. And, and with that Sydney example, did you find you were up against it all the time or did, was it quite easy to get mindsets around to your way of thinking? But... No, once people understood there wasn't going to be another department created, you know, climate change. <laughs> I wasn't going to second staff from their department. I wasn't going to take bits of their budgets. They still kept the budgets. It's just that now we reprofiled the budgets to do things that it wasn't previously set there to do. So, um, you know, and that's something that meant in some instances, I had to go out to dinner with the director and his senior managers and just just relax. So things that you don't actually think about when you're talking about engineering or technical stuff, it's this human side, just made everyone feel comfortable. I'm yeah. not here to tell, you, to tell you what to do. We've got this program of works to do. You don't know how to do it. I'm here to help you. This is how we're going to do it. And, and essentially, um, I had very little staff um, where I was at the Sydney City because I didn't need them because I had staff in other departments. And you got it all sorted out. Well, well done. And actually, and we can maybe do that another day. One around you, you and I talked about the Olympics recently, and, and you did a similar idea there, whereby again, you in fact maybe worth touching on that just now, whereby. The, you, you won the bid because it, there was something specific on it that you did that others didn't? Um, well, when we looked at um, uh, the, the specification for Olympics changes every time, every four years. You know, and um, one of the problems with the Olympics is, is that you only got four years between knowing that you've won something and actually delivering it. Um, and, and we know that you can't really do that within four years. So you have to do some preparation work in advance. I mean, one of the things with uh, uh, the Olympics, for example, is that we've got a, tra a, a transmission grid line and a you know, 132 kV primary distribution line to running several kilometers across the land. They had to be undergrounded. There's nearly a uh, the uh, you know a, a billion pounds worth of, of work there, so that was put out to tender and all geared up to actually let a contract. So if we did win the bid, it could be let straight away. If we didn't win the bid, the work wouldn't happen. But the 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 bid itself, um, everyone does a good sporting bid, um, and so when you come to point scoring, there's not a lot to choose between Los Angeles, London, Paris, or, or whatever. Um, so you then have to look at that, that part that is on the outer edges of the specification, like this Olympics, it's got to be sustainable. It's got to have renewable energy, recycled water and all the rest of it. So we put a lot of effort into that part of the bid uh, because we know that the sporting part of the bid will be as good, if not better than others. But, you know, in terms of points, pretty much there. Maybe, uh, maybe other cities had a slightly better uh, sporting approach. Um, so we uh, we 
focused on the sustainability. So we put renewable energy in there, we put energy efficiency there, we put water recovery systems, we had alternative transport systems. Uh, we even did things that seems obvious now, but of course had never been done before, was that instead of building an athlete's village, and then after the Olympics was over, demolish it and then build something else in its place, we actually built apartments to start with. And that, um, and that the, what essentially happened was that the athletes actually occupied apartments that were designed for people to live in, not for athletes, and that were actually going to be put on the market and sold or put to uh, social housing um, after the Olympics had, uh, had finished. And it's those kind of things when we talk about sustainability. Um, and we think that we won the bid on those bits that were around that, which other cities hadn't really focused on. Mm-hmm. They just put everything into Sport. flat architectural designs, you know, what the, you know, the sporting side of the things, those, those kind of things, which, you know, pretty, pretty much of a muchness these days, whichever uh, city puts in a, in a bid. But the sustainability bit was the bit that we feel was um, different and significantly better than other cities. But we were still surprised we, we won the bid. No, and here, what an Olympics. And I, I had the pleasure, I was lucky enough to be there. And, and what you created was incredible, absolutely incredible. Um, and I believe it's, you know, it's, it's totally changed now as well. It's, it's a good part of London that's been used that wasn't there before. Oh, well, you should have seen it before the Olympics. It's a, not a very nice place. The River Lee was choked up with all kinds of rubbish, tire burning factories. Oh, <laughs> Okay, so so go back to the hot topic. So look, so we, 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 I guess looking at what we've got, we've got governments that need to embrace working closer together with the commercial world and embracing modern renewable energy tactics to speed up, um, energy, you know, renewable energy and strategy behind it all. I mean, how how far down this line are we? So I mean, how how well are we placed at the moment? You know, how how can we improve? Um, well, as I said said earlier, we are doing things, but we don't have a hundred percent plan. We just, you know, the government puts out a bidding round for offshore wind. Yeah. No, actually, what, what, what are we actually going to do with that electricity? Is it all going to go into the grid? And what happens when we say, oh, we've got too much renewable, so we'll stop building offshore wind farms, even though there's a huge resource out there. So it needs to think the actual fact we can make use of that. We can we can turn that into an export market. Because the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the North Sea gas and oil is declining quite significantly now. And this, this could be what could replace it. So we just need to think about this whole joined up thing. And, and, and government isn't there. In fact, no government is there, to be honest. There are no, no governments around the world that have, uh, even those that are doing even better than the UK with renewable energy, they haven't thought about what a renewable energy society would look like, how we would balance these systems, how we would, uh, how, how governments uh, maintain their income from uh, taxation. That's, so those kind of big, big questions. No one's really thinking about that. And they're the things that are stopping progress. Because all the time you have governments, so we can't have, and we've clearly seen this with the federal government in Australia, who have become the political wing of the fossil fuel lobby. They're no longer a political party. But the same party in state governments are implementing renewable energy. It's just the, it's just the federal government that's outstepping everybody else. Um, and that's because it's a mindset. It's a fossil fuel mindset. You know, you get visible donations from these big companies. 
you get extraction licenses and you can make money from you get you get uh, various uh, fuel duty fossil fuel levies and things that you get from companies that that mine and uh, and uh, use the uh, fossil fuels for energy generation transport and so on and and really it's about changing that mindset to bring it forward because it's going to happen in any event we we saw once before we talked about energy that at the beginning of the century, the predominant form of transport was the horse and carriage. With horses, and, and they had to be certain, the stations had to be certain distances apart because the horses could only go so far. And they needed water. You needed to change horses, maybe. And we can all imagine in America the Wells Fargo and, and all that sort of thing. And it is quite amusing to see um, uh, people getting so hung up about the driving range of electric cars compared to uh, petrol and diesel. You pull into a fuel station, it takes you a few minutes to fill up your car and off you go. And they're trying to replicate that experience for electric vehicles, which doesn't work. Most, most, most cars don't travel very far at all. And they could quite easily do all their charging from home. They're a lot cheaper than, than plugging in somewhere. And if you are going to fuel externally, then these are places, these are going to be like, you know, out of town shopping centres, supermarkets, um, probably the big motorway service stations. They've usually got a lot of land, huge car parks, because people, are, you know, are they really bothered? They, they come in, they plug into a, into a socket and they go in and have a cup of coffee or breakfast or lunch or dinner or they've got shops in there now. People go shopping in these places. Um, you know, it's a different it's experience. A, yeah. Uh, and there isn't enough room. If you wanted to charge a lot of electric cars in a, in a, in a, in a fossil fuel station, there isn't enough room. There'll be queues or whatever. So that is in the same way that the internal combustion engine displaced the horse and carriage using completely different method of, reuse, of uh, renewing their energy compared to horses and, and carriages. And so the kind of uh, change that we'll see with electric vehicles and I, and I think also for the bigger vehicles, we'll also see hydrogen coming along as well uh, for those vehicles that need much longer range, carrying much heavy loads. Um, we could even see in the same way that we, we see petrol and diesel, we could see an electric, you know, renewable electricity and renewable hydrogen running our transport system. Um, and all that's possible isn't the technology that's holding us back. It isn't even the, the lack of engineers or the know-how to do this. It's the politics and the convert economics that we have around these systems yeah so and and you're right i know there's i mean certainly the hydrogen pieces certainly there's a lot of investment going on there at the moment certainly in the uk and that's a, an up-and-coming technology that you're, you're probably fully aware of and I, and I guess it comes back to the same point as you said earlier it's about mindset you know it's about it's about people um recognizing the the, the plan so at the end of the day just because i mean the reason that there's petrol stations is that the cars wouldn't move without the petrol <laughs> so it's, it's now a case of you know you, you you can make your life better by having potentially a charging point in your house whereby you're, you're charging at the solar panels off your roof or whatever it is and actually you don't need to go to a petrol station you know perceived petrol station um or similar so it's just getting heads around that isn't it um and and, and engaging governments to, to allow that to happen um what what about modernization alan what, what, what i mean renewable energy i guess we're all saying you know we've you know there's been so much development we're we're there i mean is there scope for 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 modernizing what, what can improve 
Oh, yes, quite significantly. And um, that's one of the areas that I always keep in touch. I mean, engineers should always keep themselves in touch with what's going on, but, but very few do. There are really exciting things going on with, uh, with solar, with uh, storage, and even with electric vehicles. Um, you know, there, there are universities that have developed um, uh, solar technologies that are much more twice as efficient as, as uh, solar that we have today. Uh, even um, uh, some solar technologies that can be embedded in glass, so your windows not only provide you with light, but generate electricity. Uh, there are even companies that have developed so-called zombie cells, which can actually generate electricity from indoors, indoor wow. lighting. Yeah. And, um, not, I mean, I mean, I've got a, I've got a watch that uh, relies on solar and has a small capacitor in it which charges up. So we're talking a technology like that but, but big, that is able to supply more electricity efficiency but you don't have to go out into the sun to generate it so watch this space with zombie cells um, and on batteries technologies you'll see lithium-ion replaced by more advanced systems using cheaper materials so the cost of the and we've already seen that tesla are changing the batteries for the for the uh, their cars that they're making in china to one of these new technologies which is going to be cheaper than lithium ion and therefore bring the cost of the uh, car down and so we're not we're, we're we're not far off maybe only a few years away where electric vehicles instead of being more expensive than fossil fuel vehicles and do need grant support from government to get that uh, industry going you'll see them becoming cheaper so you you know and, and when you get to that point what we call the tipping point well why would you want to go out and buy a diesel car or a petrol car if you've got one for thousand pounds cheaper or two thousand pounds cheaper than an electric vehicle that you could generate your own energy from if you've got solar as you say and technologies now we've got vehicle you know, vehicle to grid systems where you can actually use the electricity stored in your car battery to supply your house at different times of the day so time of day uh, charging smart technologies smart metering although we're beginning to see those come in now with companies offering these uh, uh, different tariffs for people that have got electric vehicles so there's some big changes going on and we're beginning to see um uh, some even uh, we spoke about renewable hydrogen earlier which we've always known we can we can make uh, hydrogen from electrolysis um but um there are uh, there are some there's some work going on in queensland for example where they've developed a technology that can convert that hydrogen straight through to renewable methane to the same specification as natural gas, there's no carbon. There are other companies that are actually using uh, electrolysis from uh, uh, biogases and extracting the carbon and selling that in, into the carbon products market uh, as graphite you know, for, for water purification uh, for industry and so on. And it's, you know, when, when people um, talk about carbon, you know, see, you know, capturing sequestration, burying it in the ground, it's, yeah. oh, it's, it's, it's about there making carbon from energy, when actually you could set a virtuous uh, the circuit, circle there and choose the technologies that give you that uh, carbon or graphite to be used elsewhere um, and, and not just store it away and yeah. hope that it doesn't leak out. Um, and, and so it's just that, and that's because people, when they get into these industries, are focused on their particular technology, solar or batteries or wind. There's very few companies that deal with all of these. And then you start to think about, well, what happens with 
carbon that you capture? Can we do something with that rather than just burying it in the ground? So there's a lot of things like that that um, uh, just needs uh, holistic thinking around. And we're not really getting that from government at the moment. Yeah. And is that purely from what you're seeing and, and your role? Are you seeing that depending on what country you look at, the different levels of investment, stroke success, I guess? Yes, that's right. And that's one of the um, uh, advantages uh, I've had, I guess, being involved with so many countries around the world. I've mentioned a few ones that I was uh, specifically involved in. Um, it does make you see that it, 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 it is different in different countries. I mean, the laws of physics are the same around the world, but the way that uh, uh, countries and governments deal with this issue, there's different regulations around. That's the big thing. That's the, the you know, regulatory barriers. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons I was able to do what I did in Woking is that we put in private wire networks to get around the regulatory barriers because we knew we could extract more income from that than just selling it to the grid. And that's essentially what was used. And we were able to reduce people's, not just heating bills, but also electricity bills by taking that approach. And you think to yourself, well, why is, because electricity, the laws of physics dictate electricity will always flow to the nearest demand. So if you're generating surplus power on your solar in your house, it's only gonna to go to your, your next door neighbor. Um, but why, do you have to have all them other charges, transmission losses, distribution losses, use of system charges, uh, all those other things uh, treat you as if you were a thousand megawatt power station? And those regulations, um, you know, are, you know they, they, they kind of exist all around the world. And some countries are a lot worse than the UK. It's actually illegal to generate your electricity in some countries. You can be good for that. And they're the kind of things that have got to be overcome. And the reason why you have those rules and regulations in place is because they're trying to protect the status yeah. quo. And another example from history is that the first lighting, of course, was gas lighting. And when electricity came along, did they use all their lobbying power to actually stop local authorities from switching from gas lighting to electric lighting? And, and when we see the results of that, and even with cars, of course, in order to protect the... Uh, the horse and carriage industry, uh, um, some some uh, cities introduced the man with the red flag to walk in front of the car to make sure that the car couldn't go yeah, faster horse. than the horse and carriage. Supposedly for health and safety reasons, but it was the same, it was the walking speed, which is what horse and carriage would effectively be it's a little bit better than that if, you, if you're going into a, into a city road. So um, there are vested interests out there that just want to stop you doing yeah. stuff and they want to carry on as much as possible. We saw that with the tobacco industry. We've known about tobacco and cancer for years, and yet it was strung out and strung out and strung out and strung out um, to stop these laws coming in, you know, smoking in public places and, and so on. We're seeing the same thing with energy. And, um, and these are things that we need to be aware of and we need to, uh, we, we need to try and bring people with us. So yes, that's your industry at the moment, but you could be in this industry. You have 80, 90% of the, of, the, of the capacity and the know-how to actually do this. So instead of being a coal miner, you can be a hydrogen mm -hmm. miner. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant, Alan. And, and, and actually from a, a UK standpoint, is there a way of measuring how, how well we're doing? I mean, what, how, how do we quantify you know, where, where we are versus where we're going? The, the, the government does produce um, annual energy statistics. You know, the UK 
digested UK energy statistics and the emissions that could go with that. And of course, we have seen a big reduction in coal uh, generation, uh, less than it was in the Industrial Revolution. And we've seen that happen literally in the last few years. So I, 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 it will be no surprise when coal is eventually phased out within the time frame that the government was saying. The problem I think we have in the UK at the moment is the fossil fuel natural gas industry and, and the issues around fracking and stuff like that. And, and actually, do we actually need that industry at all? Could we not replace that with a renewable gas industry? You know, renewable hydrogen or renewable biomethane or, or whatever. Through the measures that I've said already, um, I mean, one of, one of the, the, the Committee on Climate Change got it right in that, um, as you know, natural gas is going to be banned for new developments, uh, 2025, I think it is. Um, so what will take its place? We've got this huge pipe network and storage infrastructure that currently houses the mm -hmm. natural gas. That could be used for renewable gas, but they um, and they they've obviously um, recognised that renewable hydrogen could take the place of, uh, of natural gas, but their thinking is around still using natural gas and having carbon capture and sequestration, and I think that just doesn't wash. And I think uh, people uh, there'll still be issues to do with fracking. There'll still be issues to do with noxious emissions. There'll be issues to do with water consumption for these sites as well as the polluted produced water. So they're all issues that don't go away just because you're burying carbon dioxide under the ground. And actually, we've got this huge renewable energy resource. We've also got a significant solar resource in the UK, which is a lot of solar energy, more actually than Australia. Really? Okay. And we've got this huge offshore wind industry as well as onshore wind. You know, we just need to think it through. So actually, let's make use of this instead of that and let's help these companies that are used to drilling holes in the ground to do yeah. stuff above the ground yeah. very easy very easy getting people around to that way of thinking so i mean is is that what needs to happen then to ensure success i mean what is that the, the key factor it's basically mindset yeah. changes in organizations it isn't technology it isn't capacity all of those things can be delivered it's really about uh, changing the mindset, and um, and that, that that is not just government, of course, but also business, particularly the businesses at the moment that are, are heavily invested in in the fossil fuel industry. They don't want to go out of business. They've got shareholders and so on. How do we help them transition? Now, that may be that we end up with the invidious situation where we're providing some sort of taxation to court to, to wealthy companies but only to that part of their business that is transitioning. So there is ways and means of, of doing this to help people tra transition from one uh, energy industry to another energy industry. And I think that's where the politicians and the economists need to put a lot of their grey matter together, as to how that can be achieved, at what kind of pace can it mm -hmm. be achieved. Let's just bring everyone together because... Um, it's not it's not impossible to get to 100% renewable energy future much earlier than 2050. It can be easily achieved, but we need to do it in the in the way that we need to phase out the old system and bring in the new system at a fairly rapid rate um, with support from government. Well, let's see how we get on. I think you you're speaking. A lot of sense and it makes perfect good you know an understanding of and i've written down a couple of key points here around you know the mindset change of usage versus consumption 
um, of, of households and I guess of businesses as well. They, they joined that plan of, of energy companies so that everyone, there is a greater goal and governments are also as part of that plan so that everyone's working together. Um, and, and I guess the sustainability piece as well, whereby, you know, it's, I think, you know, people can change. And I think that the scenario this year that we're, we're all faced with, you know, people, whether they like it or not, can actually change because everyone has had to. Um, and I guess it's just now whether people want to change and, and actually can, can keep up, you know, keep keep that um, motivation going um, for, for the environment. There is there, there, there are people talking about the link between COVID and climate change. Not that there's a, a joint, but what governments were forced to do yeah. in a very short period of time, especially this government and the financial packages they put around that, could be done for climate change. It said it wouldn't be anywhere near as painful as that. It's about transitioning. Actually, would the, you know, they wouldn't, instead of being a burden on the national debt, could actually help the national debt. Um, but that kind of thinking, like, oh my God, we've got this big, big yeah. problem. We can't by normal means, and we got yeah. to act quickly. When you force government to think outside the box. Now, who would have thought a Conservative government would bring in a program that businesses, you know, going during this uh, lockdown? That's the kind of mindset that you need for climate change. But as I said, it doesn't need to be anywhere near as painful as that. Is that you don't need to put anybody in lockdown. You don't need to put shovel loads of money in there. It's about reprofiling money that's already there from something here to something over there and, and getting businesses to work with you. Um, incentives to get businesses that are currently in the wrong industry that mm -hmm. haven't the future. Incentivize them to move from that outdated uh, energy industry into this new one. And and uh, that actually isn't as difficult as what they've had to deal with with COVID. Yeah, well, very easy. Absolutely simple, isn't it? <laughs> Alan, if, uh, look, I'm, I'm really grateful for, for your time today. If people want to get in touch with you, is, is there a good method of doing that to, to get in touch with you? Um, if they want to do it via you, if we have a link. Ab to absolutely. You. That's absolutely fine. And uh, so that's through... And the, the bonfire uh, website is bonfireengineering.com um, and, and I'd like to thank you for your time today Alan and I do hope that um, your ideas and, and, and you know, the opportunities that, that are there can happen because that is where we're going to, the world is going to, to have to go and it's just a case of how quickly, is it 2050 or is it 2030 or is it 2025, we, we will see um, so, so that brings us to the end of another episode of the Engineering Ignition Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen and I do look forward to the next episode of our Experts and Leaders series in the very near future. Thanks for listening to the Engineering Ignition Podcast. If you've made it this far, we take it that you enjoyed the show. In return, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Subscribe while you're there and we'll catch you for the next episode.